Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the lead pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, I want to thank Becky and Samantha for leading this morning. Um, they are, I, I didn't realize this, they were the, the backups to the backups. There was one uh, group that was supposed to be leading, and then they got called elsewhere, and then the backups to them got sick last night. So they're stepping in really on the fly, and I really appreciate that. Um, I definitely would not do that. We, this week, are in the third week of a five-week series uh, looking at the, these five virtues, uh, five theological emphases of the, the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> um, 500 years ago uh, is when things really got going in terms of the Protestant Reformation. There were people before then, uh, and there were some more important things that happened afterwards. But we kind of look at 1517 as the moment when things really caught and the, the fire of Reformation really started burning. And we, we have these five solas, uh, which is not uh, correct Latin, but that's just what we say. And uh, we've already talked about sola scriptura and solus Christus. And this morning we'll talk about sola gratia, grace alone, and why that was so important to the reformers. And um, it's important to, to understand kind of the context in which this grace revolution happened. Uh, the, the Middle Ages are, are very far removed from us, not just chronologically, but uh, sociologically, culturally. It's a very different world that we live in now uh, compared to what the church uh, grew up in for 700, 800 years. And so it's hard for us to, to listen with a, with a finely tuned ear to what exactly the reformers are hammering on about. And, and I would say that if you picked up the works of any of the reformers like Martin Luther or John Calvin or any other of a number of great theologians, um, you'll hear them banging this drum about grace. And even now it, it seems like a big deal, but in their context, in their day, it was an even bigger deal because of what came before them. Um, so they, they were responding to an understanding of grace that, that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching where basically you have to cooperate and perpetually receive grace to keep on growing and being acceptable for God. So it's not like before 1517, the church never believed in grace. But the way they talked about it meant that you had to work hard in cooperation with grace for grace to take effect. And in Martin Luther's day, we saw that in a real um, stark manner. Because what happens is if you don't cooperate with grace properly, sin must be dealt with in some way. And so the doctrine of purgatory develops. Who's heard of purgatory? Okay. Who understands purgatory? Yes, much smaller number. I don't know that I would raise my hand. But what the Roman Catholic Church would come to teach is, is that in order for grace to fully take effect, even after you die, you have to kind of make up for the sins that you commit. And in Martin Luther's day, there was this traveling preacher who did this thing called selling indulgences. 
where he would sell, basically get out of purgatory free cards. And purgatory is like this sort of torturous in-between place where everybody believed that everybody's friends and family were after they died. And if you're growing up in 1517, you know, you probably only live till you're 40. So like lots of people that you knew are in purgatory and you want them to get out. And this monk would come around saying, if you give money to the church, as soon as the change hits the bottom, then souls will be released from purgatory. So you have all these poor people reaching into their very empty purses to throw money in there so that the work of grace would be completed and you could go on to heaven. Really, this was all just a giant fundraising effort to, to build the Vatican. So if you go to the Vatican in Rome, you, it's you profiting off the, the backs of these poor people. Just, I'm, I'm just saying, you live with your conscience. No, I'm, I'm kidding. If you want to go see the Sistine Chapel, it is awesome. You should do it. Uh, it's just that it was built on the back of poor people. Um, so this is what's happening in the air of, of Martin Luther's time. We have to cooperate with grace. We have to see the work of grace completed. And Martin Luther and the Reformers are going to come with a dramatically different angle, what we would say is a biblical angle of what exactly the grace of God is and what it does in us and for us. So this morning, we're going to be reading in Ephesians 2. You can turn there or you can read on the screen with me. (coughs) I'm going to try not to cough into the mic. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, for your gracious communication to us. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft towards you. I pray that these words that many of us who grew up in church that we've heard again and again would, would strike us afresh, that we would not let the, the repetition of vocabulary dull our senses so that we miss the greatness of what you've done for us. We are people prone to callous hearts, O oh God. We pray that you would soften our hearts. Make us stirred up in love as we see you afresh. Thank you, Jesus.
Amen. This, uh, this passage in Ephesians is quite famous, specifically these verses 8 and 9 that I read. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if you've grown up in the church, you have heard these words a lot, probably. And it's tempting to kind of commit them to memory, but only let them stay in the memory portion of your brain and not let them be a a thing that you meditate on, that your heart dwells on. But what I think that we have to be aware of is that our hearts are constantly tending to veer away from what Ephesians 2, what indeed I think all of Scripture is trying to say about how and why God saves us. Our temptation is constantly to believe that God saves us because and when we, be, we act like good people. I hear it all the time from people. They'll even use the language of grace in an entirely inappropriate way. When I'm good, God will give me grace. That's not what grace means. That's literally not the definition of grace. Grace is giving what is not deserved. And Paul here in Ephesians 2, and he'll do it elsewhere in Romans, he makes clear who and what we are in and of ourselves. What he, the language he uses here is that we are by nature children of wrath. So what he's saying is, is when you are born, you are born in opposition to God without even consciously necessarily doing it. It is your nature to be opposed to God. And being in opposition towards God means that what you deserve, what is merited, is wrath. Because God is the King of heaven. And when you oppose the rightful authorities in a given place, you oppose the king, you are committing rebellion. It is seditious. It is a capital crime. And Paul is saying that you are born into the state of capital crime. So you and I are born to be children of wrath. It's in our nature and in our behavior. And you can say, well, that's not really fair. But that's totally uninteresting to Paul. Whether you think it's fair or not is not what Paul is interested in. What he's saying is this is just the state of things. And it's something that's easy to observe about the world. We can move from the ready admission that we're not all perfect to just reading the news. And we can read the news and see this opposition to God all around us. And then if we were patient and honest with ourselves and looked at our own lives and indeed our own hearts, we would see that the only difference between what's in our heart and what's in the news is maybe a little self-control and maybe a little less publicity. What is in your heart is not far removed from what you read in the news. And what Scripture will say is, it being in your heart is itself rebellion. I would say that the best teacher of Scripture ever makes this point most clearly when he says on the Sermon on the Mount, 
If you lust in your heart, you've committed your adultery. If you are cursing your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. That's Jesus. Jesus is telling you that the thing that is in your heart is tantamount to doing that thing. So what we hear from Jesus, what we hear from Paul, is that we are by nature people who are opposed to God. Whether you meant to or whether you consciously did it is entirely beside the point. What is, what is deserved, what is merited at that point is just punishment for capital crime. Now then, we are, we are left with a problem. How do people who stand condemned before God, condemned by our own actions, get to a place where we're somehow called children of God? Now, in that problem, in that equation, we have a natural response. Be better. Just be better. You know all those things that makes you stand condemned before God as treason. Don't do those things. That's the answer. And look, it makes a ton of sense. Just don't do those things. But that kind of command, that rationale, how, how's that working out for you? Just be kinder. Just be more kind. How is that working for you? Let me self-report. You don't have to tell me. It's not going great. I have been telling myself to be more patient for 32 years. I am out of patience for trying to be more patient. It's not working. Let, let me tell you how it's working when I tell myself, don't be angry so much. It's not going great. I, I'm trying, I really am trying to be a more patient, compassionate, empathetic person. I, I promise you, I really am. But it's not going very well. And I don't know what your thing is. Maybe you are a patient, lovely, tender person. And I know there are many in this room, you're all better at it than me, but you have your thing, and I don't know what it is, but whatever that thing is, I bet you've told yourself a thousand times, just stop doing blah. There are shelves and shelves of self-help sections filled with all kinds of tricks to help you just be more X. And the evidence is pretty clear. It doesn't work. So, if we are people who stand before God condemned by our actions in nature and behavior, and we want to be children of God, if He's out there, I assume that we would all want to be His children because He is good and kind and the source of all beauty and love in the, in the universe. We, we want to be connected to Him. So how do we go from this category to this one if just being different is not working out for us? What Paul is saying here is 
you need radical transformation. You basically need to not be you. The problem is not your education or your culture or your effort even. The problem is you. You are dead in your trespasses. You are a slave to sin. And what the reformers will come to this text and others and see is the language is not like you're pretty all right and if somebody could just kind of give you a boost, you could, you could do it. There is no partiality here. There is no halfways. You are dead in your sin. What Paul will say in Romans 5 is you are an enemy of God. You are not living in neutral territory. So in order for you to be connected to God, to experience the life of God, something transformative must happen. And that is grace. You and I have nothing to offer God. And God is not saying, come transform yourself and then be a part of my my household. He is saying, I will transform you and I will bring you home. Now, this is entirely against what we believe the world should look like. We believe that the world works best when we can trade. I do it naturally in relationships all the time. I have done this for you. Now you owe me this. Or you have done this for me and now I owe you that. That is by default how we treat people. And if you bring that mentality towards God, you will be screwed up forever. It will just perpetually confuse you and astound you. Because you will run into this thing where you you sin again, where you will yet again fail to just be better. And what you'll find when you go to Scripture, what you'll find from your spiritual community, what I hope you find in your spiritual experience is that God doesn't change what He's saying to you. You are my child. You are my dear one. And you will spin your wheels again and again and again. Well, that can't be right. Let me, let me just be better, and then God will, will love me and approve of me. And you'll find that that approval and love is already there, and you'll be, that, nope, that, that can't be right. I'll just, and you will pile shame on yourself trying to figure out how to balance the scales correctly. And this is, this is what Martin Luther and the people of his day are perpetually trying to figure out is how do we tip the scales appropriately so that God might be pleased with us? And what Scripture is going to say, what the Reformers are going to say is the scales will never balance out. 
not based on your work. When we, we come to this story, we come to Jesus' story when we come to the gospel, it's important to understand that this has always been God's plan. This is, this is what God has always intended to do with people, was to give them other than what they deserve. You can read most of the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. You can read them all. And I find that when people read the Old Testament, they, they see God has given Israel a law. And if Israel would obey the law, then God would approve of Israel and be happy with Israel. But this is a misunderstanding of what God is doing in and for Israel. And therefore, what he is saying about himself to the world. God does have lots of laws in the Bible. There's a, there's a really good chunk of this thing that is law. But who God is and who his people are is not begun on the basis of law. It is begun on the basis of what God does to and for Israel first. Everything that's in here from the beginning, from page one until the end, the book of Revelation, is always and only about God doing differently than we've earned. I mean, it starts in Genesis 3, the very beginning of the thing. Basically, the first human action in the Bible is to fail the command of God. The first divine action after that should be the thunderbolt, just dead. And they don't die. From Genesis 3, that is the theme. What should happen to people doesn't happen. And on top of that, God enters the story again and again to do things that are entirely unexpected. In Genesis 12, this guy, Abram, has no introduction to the story. There's nothing about Abram that is like, Abram was, you know, really kind to animals. He, um, you know, holds babies really well. He seems to be a really nice dude. There's nothing in there. It's just Abram is born and God starts talking to him and saying, I will make you a people that will bless the whole world. Why? Why did he do that? No reason. There's nothing in Abram that made God do that. It was just God choosing to do it. God takes this people, this family, chosen for no apparent reason, and He tells them He will bless them and multiply them. And they're all scoundrels. They are terrible people. The name of the nation, Israel, is for this guy, Jacob, Israel, who cheats his blind father, lies to him so that he will get his blind father to bless him instead of his twin brother. That guy is low. We can move through the entire history of Israel's people and they're all like this. All the heroes of the Old Testament, they're not heroes. They are losers. All of them. 
Moses, like top three most important people in the Old Testament, he's a murderer. He kills a guy and buries the body and perpetually doubts God and grumbles against Him time and time again. David, greatest king in the history of Israel. He sleeps with somebody else's wife and then murders the guy so that nobody figures out why his wife is pregnant. These are the good ones. There are worse people than the good guys. The whole story is God doing things that He doesn't have to do. When we get to Jesus in the New Testament, you are not meant to read Jesus dying on the cross for people and saying, man, that's out of character. That God was grumpy for so long. And now look at Him. He's happy now for some reason. Like Jesus converted Him during His ministry. When you see Jesus on the cross doing for people what they don't deserve to have done to them, you are meant to see this is the fulfillment of Israel's God. This is the clearest revelation. This is the distillation of who God is. God has always been doing this. He's been communicating to His people, revealing Himself to His people. So when Paul says, you are by nature children of wrath, you are dead in your trespasses, God by His grace makes something out of you that you never could have been, you never participated in it, you never contributed to it. Everything in the Bible, in the history of salvation is telling us this is true. God is not looking to take you and sprinkle some grace on it and say, "Mm, there, that's better. He is taking you from the grave, taking you from the side of the enemy and breathing life into you so that you can be His child. That is grace. There is nothing that you add to your case before God. There is nothing that you add to your case. I need you to hear this with your ears and hear it with your heart. All of the ways that you are trying to be a good person, that does not win God's favor towards you. He does not love you more because of all the ways that you are helping old ladies across the street and donating to charity and helping out that next GoFundMe. He loves you all the same because His love towards you is entirely grace. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean then that it literally doesn't matter what you do with your life? Because I think that that's what people struggle with. So they come to this message that God chooses to love them entirely on the basis of His own will and His own goodness. And they say one of two things. Well, it's party time because nothing matters and now I can do whatever I want. 
It does not matter what I do with my body. It does not matter what I do with my mind because Jesus loves me anyway. That's what the Bible tells me so. That, that's not how the song goes, one, and it's not how the Bible goes either. You are not creative in this question. Paul deals with this same question in his letter to the Romans. Well, now that grace is here, should we sin all the more? No! No! But Paul's response when he's asked that question is not, let me make sure that you understand all the ways that you need to be good. His response is, you need to understand the gospel. You need to understand the good news. You know, our response would be, when I would hear a question like that is, let me tell you the hundred thousand different ways and why you cannot go and do all of these things that you want to do. But Paul's response is to give the gospel again. No, no, no. What God has saved you into is being His child, loving Him and being in fellowship with Him. And if that is what God has done for you and with you and towards you, living a life where you do whatever you want is not on the table. So what do you really want? Do you want to live your life however you want to? Or do you want to live with God? If your answer is you want to live however you want to, then the problem lies deeper. Your heart is still hard. Now, the other response after this is we are afraid of wandering into the land of doing whatever we want. So we're just going to go ahead and follow all the rules. And where there are no rules, we will write more rules. And this is a temptation that plays into our deepest nature. Because even though we can start with the idea of grace, we can wander into saying, God will be happier with me if I'm a better person. And Paul deals with this too in the early church. You read the book of Galatians. And Peter, himself a believer, has started telling people, you know what? If you eat the right things, if you take on the sign of Judaism, then you can be a part of things. And Paul very sharply says, no, no, no. No. But what is his answer? You need to know the gospel better. The answer is always the gospel. Your life, your conduct, it matters. The things that you do matter. Sin matters. God has a particular way that He wants you to live your life and it matters that you follow in that. But the answer to living the way that God wants you to live starts with the gospel. That you understand your standing before God is entirely and only about God's generosity towards you, His revelation of Himself towards you. He is not taking you and Him and adding a mixture to you and kind of swirling it all around there and getting something better that's you plus grace. He is taking you and transforming you so that you are entirely something different, a child that participates in His very nature. 
Grace alone is what saves you. Grace alone. And this has always been the way that God has been. When you are feeling so overwhelmed, when you are carrying the weight of all the ways that you have failed God and failed other people, God has always been prepared for that moment. God has always known you to the core of who you are. He is not surprised by your failure. He is not surprised that you cannot live up and just be better. He's always seen you for who you really are. And He has decided to love you. He has decided on the basis of His own work to treat you as if you have never done anything wrong. The cross of Jesus is something you have to keep in front of your face all the time. And I speak from experience. I have to tell myself the Gospel all the time. Again, God, I failed you. Again, I have failed to live up. Again, I have not been the person that I know that I should be. Again, God, I know that you must be tired of me. I know that I must have gone down the ladder of spirituality. I know that the scales must be out of balance. Maybe I can just be better for a few days to re-tip those scales. And the gospel is always, no, you do not win God's favor ever. God has given His favor to you just because He wanted to. Just because He wanted to set His affection on you and love you. And you may understand that now in this moment, but in 20 minutes, by the end of the day, you will probably have to tell yourself the Gospel again. Because inside of you, you will silently and slowly turn, I must be better to earn God's favor. And the answer you must hear again and again is no. You will not be allowed to hold bargaining chips over God. You will not be allowed to put God in your debt. You will not be allowed to try to crawl to Him on the basis of your own work. You will be carried to the household of God by His own gracious love, and that is it. Again and again and again, church people have to tell themselves the Gospel. And if you are here and you, you have this other understanding, that you think the Bible is full of rules about how to be a good person, and that what God wants most of all, what Christians want, what Christianity wants, is to teach you how to be a good person, I have much better news for you. Christianity is, is diagnosis first that you cannot be a good person. And then it is antidote that God is sufficiently good for you and overwhelmingly good towards you. 
You cannot be the kind of person that you feel that you should be. The good news is before you today to relieve you of burden, to set you free from slavery, and to raise you from the dead. It has always only been grace. The whole story, Israel's story until the end, has always only been grace. You don't need to drop your coins in the box to set souls free. You have to look to Jesus who would free you on the basis, the cost of His own life. Grace alone is what saves you so that you might be a testimony to how good and kind and powerful God is. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank You that You are better than we could have hoped for. I pray, God, that You would help us to believe it. That we would hear the truth again and again and that, God, You would convince us again and again. Father, I pray that You would help us to see that You are before us and You are who You are, communicating Yourself to us, gracious communication, again and again and again. You call us to grateful response. You do not demand of us some mixture of grace and participation. You give us all of grace. Save us completely. And we, people, children in awe, gladly lend You our lives in response. Jesus, I pray that by Your Spirit we would all move closer to grace this morning. Whether we have been far off or whether we've been close, restore our hearts by Your gracious communication. Put Your praise in our mouth, God. And carry us home where we could not carry ourselves. We thank You, Jesus. Amen.